Raise your hand. Come on, be honest with me. Who, who here wants to be happy? Come on, be honest about it. All right. Who wants to be happy? It's an interesting question. Uh, happiness is a major, major concern at the moment amongst the people-helping professions, such as psychology and counselling and so forth. In fact, I got this email, I think it was this week, uh, inviting me to an in-service training on positive psychology and the science of sustained happiness. All right? Happiness is becoming a critical issue. Some of the psychologists and counsellors have said what's uh, happened in the past is that we've thought too much about just getting people over things instead of getting them to a happy, sustained, good kind of life. All right? Very interesting. And then this week, this week I got this uh, flyer, all right? And that is this conference here. And the name of the conference is Happiness and Its Causes. Note the byline at the top. This is the byline in the middle of this page. What makes a good life? That's a religious question. All right? It just is a religious question. Now, I want to ask you the question. You can think about this now. Do you think that the church should be involved in the happiness space? Now, the reason why I'm asking this is if you actually look at the keynote speakers here, the closest it gets to a church is a, some kind of Buddhist monk who's got a PhD in something. The rest of them doesn't really talk about it. We've got primatologists, we've got psychologists, we've got people with doctorates all over the place, and they're all teaching you how to have a good life and how to be happy. And none of them are going to quote Hebrews. <laughs> Probably. All right? which we've been going through. Now, the really interesting thing is if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, which we will later, Hebrews chapter 11 is all about what makes a good life, right? Interesting, really interesting. There's a guy uh, called Dr. Russ Harris, and he uh, has just written a book recently about happiness, and I thought I'd quote a few things out of an article that was on news.com.au. Russ Harris debunks myths around the pursuit of happiness. This is back in July 2013. Note what Russ Harris, there he is there, nice curly hair. Um, note what Russ Harris actually says in this article. It's really interesting. He says this, For the first time we're living in a feel-good society, whereas in the past we were living in a do-good society. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Russ, I think Russ is onto something. The happiness trap is the notion or idea that we are supposed to be happy, but it just makes us miserable. Now, what Russ is going to tell you, and I'm going to give you some of Russ's suggestions for how to be happy, he's basically going to say you need to give up on wanting to be happy. All right? Because sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. He basically says if, you, if you're not happy sometimes and you want to be happy all the time, you're going to be unhappy. <laughs> True? It's, pretty logical really. Here's, here's what Dr. Harris suggests. First thing is this, accept pain even if it means putting up with it and knowing it's a normal part of life. Develop mindfulness skills, don't get me started. Open up and let negative or sad thoughts flow, don't fight them. This is, I mean if you're in the field that I'm in in terms of counselling, this is a pretty big one at the moment. There's a new kind of cognitive behavioural therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy which is all about the fact that you can't stop the bad things happening, so you might as well let them flow because it's like the more... It's like if I said to you, don't think about pink elephants. What are you thinking about? Pink elephants, right? So the big idea is stop trying to bash out the negative thoughts, let them flow, and you'll get distracted soon enough. I mean, that, that's probably a bit unfair to the science of it all, but that's... Someone will quote me on that someday. Life is painful, but dealing with it allows us to have a more meaningful life. That's probably true. 
learn behavioral therapy. It teaches skills to help overcome depression. Maybe. Focus on what you can control, which is what? Pretty much nothing, right? But here's the thing. He thinks that you can control some stuff, your actions, rather than what you can't, which is kind of true, environment and others. And the last point there is shift the emphasis back from feeling good to doing good. Now, it's a bit of a mixture, right? But he's actually got some pretty good ideas in there. He's got some stuff there that probably comes reasonably close to the kind of thing that Jesus would actually say. Now, the big problem in churches is this. As soon as you start talking about happy, people get a little bit nervous, okay? Because happiness tends to be a kind of a transitory kind of thing. It doesn't really hang around too long. And if, like, when I asked you before, do you think the church needs to be in the space of the pursuit of happiness? I wonder what you would answer. Let me give you a, uh, I mean, I'm going to give you the definition of happiness and joy because in my experience, what Christians have said to me throughout my life is happiness is transitory, it kind of disappears, but joy is something that can sit underneath struggle and trouble, which is true, right? But as soon as I read these definitions, you're going to realise we're in a little bit of trouble with those, right? The feeling of, uh, happy is defined as this, this is the Oxford Dictionary, as feeling or showing pleasure or contentment. And joy is a feeling of great happiness. (laughs) You see the problem? One of them is smaller. Like happiness is kind of smaller joy and joy is bigger happiness. All right? Do you get my problem? Or do you get the problem? Well, you get lots of my problems, I'm sure. But do you get the problem here with happiness and joy? So let me ask again, is happiness and joy a core business concern of the church. This is good. This is good. Because the follow-on, they're good suggestions, right? Because the follow-on question is, should the project be interested in people's happiness? And some of you come to church today because you've heard me preach sometimes before and you're going, will I walk away happy today or not happy? (laughs) All right? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Is, should the project be in the business of people's happiness? Now, there's always a trick to the questions I ask, right? Those who have been around long enough know this, right? I think we should be in the business of people's happiness. Okay? Some of you are going, okay, where's my stuff? <laughs> I'm leaving. See, a lot of people, you've heard this often, people say, I'm going to become a Christian right at the end because I want to have all my fun and then I'll become a Christian at the end of my life after I've had my fun because the idea is that if I come to God, my fun's going to disappear, right? Because God's just someone who just keeps taking stuff away and he's not someone who actually brings delight and happiness. Well, I'm going to quote some notable people here and uh, we'll uh, investigate this further. Blaise Pascal, listen to what Pascal says. All men seek happiness. And women too, all right? If you're a female, you don't get out of it. This is without exception 
Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So what Pascal's saying is he's saying a core built-in anthropological reality of human beings is that they strive for happiness and you can't stop them striving for happiness. And he's saying even the person who's suicidal, who wants to kill themselves, is striving for happiness because they want to be in a place where they're not as unhappy anymore. Fair enough? Pascal goes on to say this. There, was once, there once was in man a true happiness of which now remained to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in the things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Now, John Piper makes this comment about happiness. He says, happiness, the striving for happiness in human beings is a law of the human heart as gravity is a law of nature. I wonder if you agree with him. So I wonder if you just take a moment right now. If you were to come up with a reason or some reasons as to why you find it difficult to draw near God, you find it difficult to stay near God, you find it difficult to walk with God if you're a Christian, and even if you're not a Christian here today, the reason why you haven't even come to God, I wonder what reasons you would actually put down. Now, instinctively, what we'd actually say is we say, we haven't come to God or we don't walk with God or we sin because we seek our happiness somewhere else. I wonder what you think your biggest problem is. And I want to suggest to you today that your biggest problem is that you're half-hearted in your pursuit of happiness. You're half-hearted. If you were to be full-hearted in your pursuit of happiness, you'd be really, really close to God. Let me uh, read a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others but of going without them ourselves as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Isn't that interesting? He goes on to say this, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a had thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider, note this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, should the project be concerned about people's happiness? Should they? Should we? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Do you see the point here? It's, it's, it's a really, really interesting point. John Piper makes the point, he says, our mistake lies not in the intensity of our desire for happiness but in the weakness of it. He says if we actually really intensely desired after happiness and pursued pleasure, we wouldn't actually go, as Lewis says, to love, sex and ambition, we'd go to God himself. Because that, he is the storehouse of all pleasure and enjoyment. Anyone give me an amen on that? Is that true? It's true, isn't it, right? Now, I might read this section out of Hebrews 11. What stunned me, just before we read this section, what absolutely stunned me is the verse I'm going to spend most of the time on today. Um, There's very little from commentators on this verse. Now, it may be because it's pretty straightforward, but I think it's a huge, huge call, a huge thing. So, uh, what we might do, I'm going to read... Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 4 to 7 I'd love it if you'd stand with me while we read it this is a uh, we've we've been doing this a little bit lately because I think it's a way we can express respect to God for his word and for him speaking to us you can uh, follow it in your Bible or on the screen Hebrews 11 4 to 7 by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found now the the original language behind that is they did it's got the sense of they they did a good search to try and find him all right so he's one of the dudes in the old testament he he walked with God then all of a sudden God just took him and he he didn't die and it's like they, they had a good look for him which is what you do wouldn't it it's like where'd Enoch go he was here last week, but God took him. Had a good look, couldn't find him, God's taken him. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Listen to this. Here's your two criteria you need to please God, right? Most of you can get this first one easy, right? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's the first one. Second one? And that he what? He rewards. He rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You can be seated. This is stunning. Hebrews 4, sorry, Hebrews 11 verse 6 is stunning, right? The writer of Hebrews says you've got two criteria to please God. One is believe that he exists. The second one is every single time you come to him, you've got to expect a reward. Now, you don't always get the reward straight away. The writer of Hebrews is clear about the fact that there's a future reward, but there's also a present reward as well. That's absolutely stunning. The reason why you didn't have a quiet time yesterday is because you weren't looking for a reward. 
The reason why you didn't pray enough yesterday is because you weren't looking for a reward. The reason why you didn't trust God yesterday is because you didn't look for a reward. Do you get my point? It's all about reward. The reason why you sinned yesterday is because you went for something that was a lesser pleasure. You didn't go for the reward. You were half-hearted. If there's a problem with the project, the people in the project, I'll tell you, most of the time it's going to be half-heartedness. Amen? And it's not even, it's like, I could stand up here and you go, oh, here he goes, he's beaten up on He's not beaten up on you again, right? It's like, go and have a smorgasbord. You can sit and stuff your face with white bread as much as you want and some of the girls are stuffing you saying, there's a smorgasbord. And it's like a 20 metre long table and there's every delicacy you could think of that God offers you. And the reason why you don't go to it is because you're happy stuffing your face with Carl's white bread. That's a dollar a loaf. The reason why you watched TV yesterday instead of spending time with God or TV this week instead of spending time with God is because you didn't go for the reward. Do you get my point? You do? You need to get it. All right? You need to get it this week. That's my point. Go for the reward. Don't be half-hearted. Now listen, one of the things that gets thrown out as soon as you start talking about this stuff, some of you may be a bit unsettled about this, because there's quite a strong notion out there, as C.S. Lewis talked about, that there should be no self-interest in love. There should be nothing in it for you, otherwise it's not love. You heard that one before? Yeah, it's partially true. But here's the thing. Let's say tomorrow afternoon, some of you heard me use this story before. Let's say tomorrow afternoon, I duck in to Woolworths, find the reduced to clear flowers, (laughs) scratch the sticker off because they're really hard to get off. All right? And I come home and I knock on the door of my house, which I don't normally do, but I obviously just want to surprise my wife. And she comes out to the door and she, she sees the flowers in my hand and, and she, uh, oh, Peter, how could you? And I said, well, I'm not really enjoying this at all, but I know that husbands are meant to buy flowers for their wives. So I just went and bought some for you and here they are. Is there a problem with that? Huge problem, right? Now, the better way to do it is to say, there's nothing that I enjoy more than blessing you. You see that? That's, this, the, the interesting thing about that is it's got some self-interest in it, but the self-interest is ultimately not the main thing. The main thing is to bless someone else. But there's self-interest in it. On Friday, Angie and I went out with Joel for breakfast, which we haven't done for years. I loved it. And it's right that I love it. And I, we, we sat in the lounge and we just, I mean, we ate breakfast. Do you get what I'm saying? Now, you could say, Peter, you selfish man. You enjoy spending time with your wife. Do you get what I'm saying? Isn't that weird? You wouldn't say that. You'd say, well, hopefully you might say, oh, he actually loves her. Because there's nothing he wants to do more than just be with her. Because that's what he enjoys the most out of everything. You don't want to go to God and offer him obedience, reduce the clear flowers. I'm just doing this because I have to. You want to go to him and you say, man, there is nothing else that I would ever want to do. Because he always promises a reward. 
One of the classic scriptures that gets quoted, and uh, C.S. Lewis referred to this, uh, about the fact that there should not be any self-interest in love, is this one here out of uh, Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. People say, see, there shouldn't be any self-interest at all in you following Jesus. It's a big problem. I mean, whenever someone uses a scripture like that, to explain a point like that, you just want to go to the context, all right? Because the very next verse, look what Jesus says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All of a sudden, he cranks right in. He goes, listen, follow me, deny yourself, give up all of your desires and you'll get to keep your life. Self-interest. But not ultimately. Do you see the point? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Does Jesus want you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? No, he wants you to get the greatest gain. So deny yourself, follow him. That is the greatest gain. Now some of you are probably sitting there and you're going, oh, this is a bit dangerous though, isn't it? Anyone thinking that? It's a bit dangerous? Well, Jesus is a bit dangerous. I mean... If you go home and you look up like BibleGateway.com or something and search for the word reward in the New Testament, you'll be stunned how many times the word reward comes up in scriptures. God's continually offering rewards. That's the kind of God he is. He's generous and he gives to you. The critical thing to realise is that the point of the gospel is uh, originally we were actually made to find our greatest pleasure in God. God is the highest pleasure of all. And walking with him is the most delightful thing of all. This is 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So you get God. Like seriously, if, if God was the most delightful treasure that you could ever possess and he just gave you a four-bedroom house, a double lock-up garage and, a, and an ensuite, would he be that loving? Well, maybe a bit. Yeah, if this is a thing, and any of you, some of you people for sure, you love buying gifts and presents for people. You want to buy something that's just really, really good, all right? Now, I made the mistake early on in my marriage about telling my wife the deal that I got on the present that I bought her. You don't do that, right? <laughs> you don't do that. Why don't you do it? Because the expense of it and the, the gift of it, the, the preciousness of what you give is connected to what you think about someone. Now, if God really, really loves you, the preciousness of what he gives, his gifts to you, will give you an indication of, of his love for you. It's not just about giving you a new car. He may not give you a new car. It's not about giving you a nice house. He's not about getting you out of a mortgage. He's about giving you the best thing you could ever have himself. Is that boring? I mean, you need a faith injection, right, if that's boring. Maybe I need to preach a little bit better. That could be part of it, all right? But that, that ought not be boring. I tell you, if you think it's boring to get God and to walk with God, you don't know what it's like. Let me give you some examples of some other scriptures on delight and reward. Listen to these. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll do what? Give you the desires of your heart. Now, a footnote on this verse is you delight yourself in the Lord and the desires of your heart change, which is a good thing, right? Because we desire stuff that's 
But you know what? Here's the point. We're not Buddhist. All right? I'm not going to shave my head and wear a weird gown. Okay? The Buddhists are kind of going, desire's the problem. You've got to suppress desire. If you can get rid of desire, you get rid of suffering. That's kind of one of the big ideas behind Buddhism. We're not like that. We don't think desire is bad. We actually just think you need to get your desire filled in the right place and not stuff your face with white coals bread, but get the banquet. Look about this one, Psalm 42, 1-2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my song for you, O God. My soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That guy is pretty one-eyed, right? You just got to get God. That's all I need right now is I just need God. Don't need anything else. Don't need a new chariot, new mule, ox. Don't need a new yoke. I just need God. What about Psalm 36, verse 8? They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. About this one, Psalm 34, 8. I taste and see the Lord is what? Good. Who agrees with that? Who can give me an amen about that? Do you know? Who knows it? Some of you know it, right? This is the thing, like we've been talking the last couple of weeks, that faith is the evidence of things unseen. So today you've got the opportunity to say, yes, I enjoy God. And it's almost like, yeah, I testify to the fact that God is good. Does anyone here testify to that? He's good. I've tasted and he's good. Amen? We've got to get a bit more excited about it. Then I'll go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. He's not saying, then I'll go to the Xbox. My exceeding joy. Well, sometimes, maybe. God always is our exceeding joy. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You've got to go for the reward. Don't be half-hearted. What about this in Job 22, verse 25? I love the way it says this. Then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Can you say that? Can you say that today? He's my gold and my precious silver. I'm not doing Bible reading and praying out of duty, discipline. I mean, duty and discipline probably comes into it a little bit. I'm not primarily doing it out of duty and discipline. I'm going for the reward. I mean, some of you probably ought to go home this afternoon and just spend five hours reading the Bible. There you going, are you telling me to do No, I'm not telling you to do that, but if you do, there'll be a reward. So you've got to ask yourself, do I want the reward? Really? Do you want it? Some of you aren't sure. It goes a bit quiet there. Do you want the reward? All right. Psalm 103. Beautiful psalm. Just going to read it and then we're going to have an audience activity. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed by the eagles. All right. I'm going to give you 30 seconds of silence. The phrase toward the start of that Psalm 103 is, 
forget not all his benefits. So what I want you to do right now is just stop and just think about if you're a Christian, you walk with God for a while, think about the benefit that stands out to you that you could testify to. What, what's the personal benefit that you've received from following Jesus and walking with God? What would be on the top of your list that you can think of? Just one. Okay, now, here's what we're going to do. I'd love for people to start calling him out. All right? Because faith is the evidence of things that are not seen. So let's see the benefits that you get from walking with Christ. He's got one. What do you mean? Just give me one sentence explanation. What do you mean? Excellent. That's a good benefit. Yeah? Amen? Anyone amen that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, amen's just like, yeah, we agree with that. I'm in for that. All right, that's good. Who else? Yeah, what do you mean? Man, that's a good benefit, yeah? All right, yeah. Oh, come on. How good's that? Amen? Amen, yeah. Come on. What else? Yeah. Oh, come on, you're so subdued. <laughs> Aren't you? Like, hasn't that? I mean, that's probably most of us. Amen? Come on, more. He's into that. Yeah, come on. That's good. How good's that? Yeah? yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. We we could go on. You know, maybe we should. I mean, that would be interesting if we had a church service where uh, people would just testify one sentence. Let me tell you what the benefit is of walking with Christ. Now, if there's people here today who don't know Jesus, who don't walk that closely to Him, they ought to hear people saying, "Listen to the benefits. Listen to the huge benefits." And then they're going to go, well, I think I probably would like some of those benefits. <laughs> True? Hey, people need to hear us talking about this. This is, this is the big idea about, I mean, evangelism's not this big heavy thing where we go out and, you know, you've got to door knock everyone and, you know, offer people Bibles and tracts and all that sort of stuff. You know, most missions and evangelism is, let me tell you about the benefits. All right? Let me tell you about the benefits. I follow Jesus and, man, you don't have these benefits. All right? They go, well, I've got benefits. And just, I'm not talking about healthcare benefits. I'm not talking about investment benefits. I'm not talking about retirement benefits. I'm talking about retirement benefits and current investment options that are paying right now. Not when I'm 65. You with me? And that's why you talk about it. Now, they might think it's weird because they can't see Jesus. But just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not real. True? And this is what we're learning out of Hebrews 11, verse 1 to 3. The testimony of faith is a testimony of something that's real that you can't see with me so testify about it that's why like today to testify get excited about it really what should happen at the end of church in the mornings is you guys get together and you just go you wouldn't believe the reward i got this week all right you would not believe it 
Let me tell you about the benefits. See, this is, this is community groups, right? Community groups should be a bunch of people getting together talking about the benefits of following Christ. Because sometimes you think there's no benefit. Amen? You do. You just think, well, there's no reward here. Yes, there is a reward. And you need someone else to say, no, you klutz. All right? Well, you say it nicely in love. All right? But you say, you've been a noob or something. I don't know. You just, you've got to stop thinking that way because there's a reward. Did I just say noob? Now, I'm going to finish really quickly. Let's skip through this. Back to Hebrews. Enoch. Hebrews 11 verse 6 comes out of Enoch's life. All right? It kind of follows the little description of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Do you know how Enoch pleased God? Well, you just got to go back to uh, Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch, what did he do? I just walked with God. You don't get much on Enoch from the Bible. He just walked with God. You want to please God? You just walk with him. Now, the fact that Hebrews 11.6 comes after Hebrews 11.5, which is Enoch, is Enoch worked out that there's a reward in just walking with God. Amen? And it doesn't have to be this amazing, incredible, out-of-this-world experience. Yet it is. It doesn't have to be this amazing testimony. I mean, that's a, it looks a bit boring in terms of testimonies, right? It's not like the old kind of, once I was a withered flower, now I'm a blooming Christian. All right? It's kind of one of those deals. It, it's, it's not one of those. It's like this guy just walked with God. Now, the interesting thing is he starts walking with God after he has a kid. And anyone who's had a kid knows that it might drive you to that. All right? Because it tests you out, right? And some commentators suggest maybe that might have been a catalyst for him to pull into God was after he had children. But regardless, what does he do? He walks with God. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. So think this. He walked with God for 300 years. And God was pleased with him. And it doesn't really mention that much else about Enoch and what he did. He just walked with God. I think as Mark Driscoll said in one of his messages, he goes, I'm bringing up my children to have a boring testimony. That's what you want. I want to take this uh, opportunity to stop. Uh, what we're going to do just over the next little while is there's going to be a couple of opportunities where I want to get a modern day person who's just walking with God and doing Hebrews 11. Looking to the reward rather than always getting the present one, someone who in faith just keeps trucking on uh, even when it's hard. And uh, so today... I, uh, I want to stop here and I just want to invite Wynne Hitsky to come up and share. Um, because you can do this, right? You can do Hebrews 11. You can look to the reward and you can endure even when it's hard. Come out, Wynne. And the cool thing about getting people up to share, so you, you've got the same problem I've got. The cool thing about getting someone to stand up and share is, like, don't read Hebrews 11 and go, I can't do that. You read Hebrews, the point of Hebrews 11 is you can do it. Look at Enoch. 
He just walked with God for 300 years. Could you walk with God for 300 years? Yeah, you could. And so that's, that's the idea of getting Wynne up here is uh, Wynne's just going to tell you a little bit of her story and talk about uh, times of the and um, how, she, how she persevered through it. So I'll leave it to you, Wynne. We just need to give you a chatting stick. When Nathan was a little boy, he came to me one day, he's very little, and he said, Mummy, is Jesus very shy? And I said, why would you say that? And he said, well, you don't hear him talking much, do you? (laughs) So... um, Sometimes in life we need to know how to hear Jesus talking, don't we? And um, he very seldom speaks in a very loud, audible voice, which I guess Nathan has now learnt. But um, the Bible says that in this world we shall have tribulation. In other words, stuff happens. But there is another end to that sentence. It says, but I have overcome the world. There's always a good ending. Stuff happens, but Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He didn't say, I'll erase every problem for you. He said he would overcome. So, When stuff happens, what sort of stuff am I talking about? Stuff like crises in our life, pain, sorrow, money problems, relationships, unfairness in life, persecutions and all sorts of things like that. And in the course of our life, we'll probably run into every one of those. But... um, Jeremiah 33, verse 3, if you want to look it up, says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things. Um, Well, um, he'll show you great and mighty things. And in our minds we think he will give us exactly what we want. Those great and mighty things, that's just what I'm thinking of. But the rest of the verse said, which you do not know. You call to him and you're looking for this answer. But a lot of the time it's not what we expect. It's not that he hasn't heard us, but he does hear us, but... He's got something great and mighty things that we don't know because we're not God. He is. But he wants us to call on him. You see, God hasn't got a magic wand and um, he hasn't got miracles on tap. We wish that he did, don't we? Because we have had lots of um, problems in our lives, all of us do, Um, in all of these fields. I thought I'd just mention a couple of them. 
Um, now, I don't know if Ted told this little story when he spoke a couple of years ago, but um, we came to a crisis time in our business where we had run out of customers for our feed mill and um, for some reason that I think the opposition had tried to undercut us and all this sort of thing. And we were crying out to God. We were calling unto God and asking him to answer us. We didn't really know how he would answer us, but he did do it in a rather spectacular fashion. He sent a thunderstorm and lightning struck the opposition mill. (laughs) (laughs) And we ended up with their business. We were asked to take over there because they couldn't operate. And um, so sometimes God does answer spectacularly, Lily. But mostly God answers um, through people and ordinary circumstances in life. Now, if we have got money problems, and most of us have had or through our lives, and we pray to God and we say, Lord, please help me in this. Do we stand outside and look for a bag of money that falls down from heaven? No, we don't. Because God works through the things that are around here, through other people, through the Holy Spirit, um, giving us ideas, showing us different things. He still is answering our prayer, but he's not doing it straight away by dropping a bag of money. We have to wait and see what he's up to. Another difficult time in my life that I can remember is um, feeling very persecuted and um, treated very unfairly. And a lot of you have been through that too. You think, Lord, how do I handle this? What happens here? You, You sort of, you can become quite bitter and angry if you let it, but... I was talking to a couple of people at church a few weeks ago who are perhaps going through a similar thing to this and I decided that it was my attitude in the problem. I could see God's hand on me and consider myself to be either a squashed grape or poured out wine for him because That's what wine is, squashed grapes. And so I say, Lord, I choose to be your wine. I'm not going to consider myself, poor me, squashed grape. And when we do that, somehow God gives us a a special um, revelation, blessing, because a few weeks ago when Peter made us do that thing, was it last week? on the piece of paper about when was the most difficult times in your life and when was the times in your life that you um, were closest to God. When I did that in my paper, I noticed that the times where I found God most spectacularly (laughs) is, I'm having trouble with that word, um, were the times when it was hard. So there's the reward in hard times. If you go to God in the hard times, then you have all sorts of revelation from him that you would probably never have learnt any other way. Um, 
as Peter said, there's no course really, even though these people would like to give us a course to prepare us for anything. But um, we just can't avoid pain in this life. Um, I'd I'd like to take a couple of minutes to um, tell you a, a quick story of probably one of the most challenging years in my life. Um, It was year 1999. Ted had already been diagnosed with cancer um, and they'd given him three years to live. That was in 94. So that was the first thing on our plate. And he was still there. And then he was in his garden, climbed up a ladder and a strong wind came and he fell down and broke his back. And... He was in absolute agony. Um, But God somehow saw him through that by he just clung on to God and listened to godly music to take his mind away from the pain. And and we were so thankful because he could still walk and no um, bad damage like that was done. Then... um, He had hit his head when he fell. Actually, the big heavy pliers that he was doing this thing with fell down and clunked him on the head and he was having very bad headaches. And he'd had a brain scan of some sorts and and they said there was nothing wrong with him. Well, weeks and weeks later, he was still getting terrible headaches and they said, oh, it's probably referred pain from your back. But... Um, Easter 1999, it was the very first Easter fest I remember vividly, Um, Ted, um, or he'd been to the doctor and the doctor said, look, the pain's so bad, I want you to take eight aspirins a day and eight Panadols a day. You've got to break the pain cycle. Now, the doctor didn't know that the problem was it was bleeding (laughs) inside and imagine what happened when he took eight aspirins a day. Well, his head just filled up with, with blood and he was losing the use of his right hand, his left hand. And um, I said, you've got to go to the doctor. No, no, it's Easter. They don't want to see me. I'll just sleep it off. And he was tough like that. And um, eventually I persuaded him to go and then they found that his whole skull was filled with blood and they rushed him to Brisbane and um, then um, in the, they couldn't operate immediately because of the aspirin. And uh, so they had to wait a day. And while we waited in wondering and crying out to God and a bit of fear, wondering what, what's happening. And we called out to God and he did answer us. And Ted did come through that um, without any problem because the doctors were rather amazed that he... Um, didn't have any personality disorders or, um, you know, paralysed somewhere or speech impediment and all those sort of things that could have happened with what he had, but he he came out unscathed. Well, that got us past Easter. So he continued to work around the house. Um, We even dug up the floor, I remember, tiles on the floor when he was in this condition. And he, um, he kept feeling very much out of breath 
And again, the doctor said, it's okay. Um, it's probably just all you've been through. But then in September, it got very scary when he started talking to me about his will and um, couldn't walk to the next shop with me. I said, we're going to the doctor. So we immediately went to the doctor and they found out that, um, um, to cut a long story short, that his arteries were 90% blocked and it was a heart problem. So in Brisbane, he had to have a five-graph um, uh, bypass. And um, then after he'd had the bypass, he had a cardiac arrest. And after he had the cardiac arrest and he actually died, and then he got pneumonia. But now let me just backtrack a little because I want to show you my reactions during that time. Here we are at the hospital. Wes was overseas. He, he was holidaying, so I just had Bronwyn and Nathan with me. And um, we were at the hospital in Brisbane and before he went to surgery, you know how Nathan sings all the time, he was singing to his father and we we're all singing our favourite songs about the Lord and that calms your nerves, doesn't it? And But when we waited for the doctor's report, he came out and he said, I'm afraid I can't stop him bleeding. We think we've managed to now, but it's, it's, he's just not out of the woods. He's, the bleeding is terrible and we just, you know, we just can't stop it. Anyway... Well, we were thankful that it was over. We tried to go back to bed, but at four o'clock in the morning, my daughter Bronwyn jumped up out of, she was in the place over the road near the hospital, and she said, I've got to go to Dad. And she raced over there to her father. Um, meanwhile, in the night, I'd been reading the scripture, and I'd been reading um, Acts chapter 2, and it talks there about the man at the beautiful gate and how the, the man, at, Peter came up to him and said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It was very forceful. He didn't say, oh, please, Father, please help this poor guy. He was very forceful. He said, in the name of Jesus. And that was fresh in my mind when I raced over the hospital at Bromwell's call because there was a big emergency. Ted had actually died. We didn't know. But there were people running everywhere. And they, in the ICU, um, they ripped open his stitches all down the front just to let out all the blood that had accumulated in his chest because his heart had stopped. And um, so it was must have been a pretty gory scene. And all the time this is going on, we had a few friends call them up and they came in the waiting room and waited. I was praying and I was saying, not knowing that he died, Ted, live in Jesus' name. Ted, live in Jesus' name. Where did that come from in me? It wasn't something I just learnt on the spur of the moment. I had to learn it years before. I had to know that this is what you do in a crisis. This is, if you're walking with God like Enoch, then you, you're gathering these things. You're picking up. Now, what do I do? And and um, people were very surprised. They came out and said, yeah, he seems to be okay now. But when we were eventually let into the um, room, 
they, the nurse said to me, he's alive, but I can't guarantee you. We have already used 20 bags of platelets on him. Now, if you were a nurse, I don't know if there's nurses here, but they did tell me that the most people ever seem to use is four plate, bags of platelets. She said, we've used 20 and we cannot you give him any more. There's other people in Brisbane that will be in a crisis and we can't give everything to Ted. And, and they'd already given him, I think it was 19 bla- bags of ordinary blood. They had a tube in his side and it was draining out the blood this side and a thing there where they in this arm where they were putting in the fresh stuff and they were melting it all in the sink trying to get enough blood quickly enough to go through him and um, and when they said look I said I I don't think there's anything more we can do medically um, Bronwyn turned to me and Nathan and Bronwyn were right there with me and she said mum we are not going to believe this bad report God's above it all where did she get that from walking with God beforehand. And she immediately started praying. I started praying and saying the word of God in his ear, whispering that word of God into his ear. And the nurse said, "Um, look, um, his blood pressure had been really low. She said, look, when when he hears his wife's voice, his blood pressure's going up. And it wasn't actually just my voice. I believe it was the word of God in his ear speaking um, to him. And then the next time she measured the blood that was pouring from him, she said, oh, look, it's halved. And um, within a couple of hours, he stopped bleeding altogether. And um, we just thanked God so much that he had saved Ted in that hour It's a hard thing to walk through, but it's also, as Peter said, the reward is great because we saw God's hand move in a way that we would never have seen it if we hadn't been in that crisis. And Ted, when he woke up, he said, well, did everything go all right? This is about a whole day after the operation. And I said, oh, yes, it was... (laughs) And then the nurses told him later what had happened but I wasn't going to tell him yet Um, but then um, he heard a doctor talking behind the screen and he was saying to another guy "Um, you just don't know how things will turn out do you? He said look at that Hitsky case, he said we'd lost him but then he rallied round so um, God was there wasn't he and he answered our prayers Um, but he didn't just come down with a big miracle to start with. We had to work through all these things and through working through all these things, we came to know God in a more real way than ever. And as I said, that didn't end there. There was more faith in trusting God because they actually sent him home from hospital at the Wesley with a chest full of congealed blood and pneumonia. So when we got home... There was more crisis, but we just kept hanging in there, hanging in there, praising God, walking with him, and eventually Ted came good. Um, So 
I do know a little bit about walking hard in the hard um, times. Um, and as most of you will know, we lost Ted about a year ago. And the night before he died, um, I had a friend ring me and say, I said to her, um, Ted's really ready to go. And she said, but when are you prepared? I thought, what? Um, how do you prepare yourself? I mean, there's no course you can take in uni or anyone else to, to tell you how to handle death in your family, is there? There's nothing. So I said, my friend, the only preparation that any of us can make for any crisis is to walk with Jesus every day and love him and and just be in contact with him. He is with us He and we can face anything if we know he is with us. And, um, and that's how it happened. And God blessed us even through his death. Um, but we all can prepare ourselves. We can prepare ourselves for crisis because in life we have a lot of summer times and that's the time to gather. That's the time to get into the word. That's the time to, to know what's going on with God. Read your Bible for the four hours. Um, get some stuff in you because when the winter times of life come, you'll have the wood there to burn to keep you warm. But if you have nothing there to burn, you're going to panic. And so get busy and gather for, um, for the hard times. Um, it's just, can I talk a little bit more? Um, I would just have, the Lord gave me an illustration a few years ago, which um, I thought, usually when a problem looms, it's like this, isn't it? The problem is just all-encompassing. That's all we can see. And we say, God, um, <laughs> hey, please help. When it should be more like God is the big thing right in front of us and we're looking at the problem through God and saying, God, help me. I know there's a huge problem, but oh, you're big. You're bigger than this problem. Yeah, that's, that's something that um, I've learnt to, um, to do. Um, now, ju just to finish off with, um, I'm not quite out of the woods myself because as some of, most of you know that during Ted's time of the last couple of years of his life, I got breast cancer too. And um, in recent days, it's just it's come back as a secondary. So... I'm tested on this again and again. But whatever happens, you know that we have him. And he is our hiding place. He is our hiding place. No matter what stuff goes around here, he's the, the hiding place. Do you remember Corrie Ten Boone and her book when she was in the prison camp and all that slaughter going on around her, death, everything? She used to find God in the secret hiding place because no one could take that away from her. No matter where you are, no one can take away that hiding place with God, that secret place of communing with him in your heart. Don't neglect it. It, it is a wonderful um, 
thing to have um, because we need our needs. Our needs are the things that push us into God and we need each other. I didn't survive on my own in all this. I had so much support from church family, from family, um, from people, people praying for you. And I've been absolutely so aware that when I get up in the morning, sometimes I can feel when the prayers kick in (laughs) of other people. And it's just a beautiful sense of God's presence. God is looking after us. People care. And that's what we're meant to be in the body of Christ. You don't have to face crises alone. When I was in Brisbane there, I had friends around me, with me, and blessing me. And God stirring up people to pray with you. Please, when you see someone else in a crisis too, lift them up and um, you can walk through anything. Um, Now, if any of you are interested in that story that I told you, there's maybe a little bit more. I've got about 20-something of these that I wrote to the church that we were in at that time thanking the people for praying for us during 99 and I've, I've got that written down there. This is the copy of the copy of the copy. Um, I've reprinted them so many times since then um, but if you would really like to have that you're, you're very welcome but don't forget that the unspeakable joy of the Lord, the unreasonable joy of the Lord sometimes comes when things are the worst, it seems quite unreasonable that we could have this deep peace and joy in our hearts because sometimes our emotions are running off in all directions. But it's like the sea. When there's a storm at sea, there's rough waves, it's awful. You can, this, this, it's just very, very rough. But the deeper you are in the sea, the quieter it is. It's still waters run deep. And this is what God wants to build in each of us for the rough times is let's go deep with God because still waters runs deep. And even though our emotions are running away with with stuff that might happen, deep in your spirit you've got that wonderful peace that God is there. He is with us and he does bring indescribable joy within the depths of our being.